Amen. You may be seated. So for a third time today, as we wrap up this little Lent series, Ephesians 2. The particular verses are printed there on page 11 in your bulletin. The Apostle Paul, of course, writing. <clears throat> and you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind, but God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. This is the word of the Lord. And Father, please now move in our hearts and change our lives as we ponder this text before you. In Jesus' good name we pray. Amen. I'm sure you've noticed as you look at the natural world that there are in nature certain kind of life sources and then there is a bunch of things that depend on those life sources and actually cannot survive if they don't have the light source. I watched the, the, finally watched the movie Dune, the new version this week, and if you are in a desert world and you get cut off from your water source, you are going to die. You are in fact quite dead. Even as you still walk around, you, death is coming for you. The same thing with air. You know, if you're in outer space, you get cut off, or you're 60 feet under the water scuba diving, and you get cut off from your air supply, you're dead. If our planet suddenly cut loose and started to drift away from the sun, we'd be dead. If your arm, God forbid, gets cut off from your body and it's no longer attached to the life source that is your heart, your arm is dead. It will become necrotic. And in biblical terms, these kinds of natural dependencies that we can all see all around us they point us back to the original and the most basic dependency that there is, and it is a dependency at the heart of all creation. In the beginning, God. Things exist, and they continue to exist because God. He is life. Now sin, what the Bible calls sin, quote-unquote, is breaking off fellowship with God. It's an insane attempt to declare ourselves independent of life. And inevitably, the result of sin and turning our backs on God is maybe not immediately, but certainly over time, the disintegration, the unraveling of life. We become what Paul sa uh, says here we become the walking dead. Yes, sort of, you know, brain function, heart still pumping, but we are actually walking dead. We are staggering like zombies away from God in our sin. And Paul, early in the text, he, you, we've talked about this for a few weeks now, he says we are driven on this course, this sin course, away from God. We're driven by three mutually reinforcing currents. One current is just our own rebellious desires. I don't want God to rule me. 
Another current is a world that normalizes that kind of rebellion against the Lord. And thirdly, a spiritual power, Paul calls him the prince of the power of the air, a spiritual power who goads us through our own rebellious desires toward the ruin that he delights in. Well, we talked about the world, we've talked about the devil. Today I want to talk a little bit about these desires. The older term was passions. Because besides the fact that you once walked according to the course of this world and following the prince of the power of the air, Paul says in verse 3, you also once lived in the passions or desires of your old, sinful, dying humanity, what he calls the flesh, carrying out the desires of the flesh and the mind. Now, what I want to do initially today is I just want to take a moment and I want to think about why God made desires. Why God made desires. We should pause to acknowledge absolutely that he did. I'm sure you, you see this all around all the time. Human beings are like desire factories. From the kind of basic bodily needs that we have to more kind of imaginative stuff that we think about and, and desire, we have this capacity in us to recognize something that's good or to recognize something that's not good. And we want what is good. There's this thing inside of us that reaches toward what is good or maybe recoils away from what is bad. And if you really pay attention to those desires, you feel them in your body. You feel them in your body, even if they are very mental desires. Some of these are quite obvious in the, in the bodily realm. You know, we, we, we want nourishment. You guys are, by the time we're done today, you will be wanting that bagel, that cup of coffee. We want, we incline internally toward rest when we're tired. You just almost can feel almost a, a hunger to just stop and rest when you're exhausted. We can see the good and we're inclined toward the good of pleasurable sensations. I mean, who doesn't, I'm sorry, you winter lovers, this time of year, I just love the feel of the warmth of the sun. I sat out on my back deck this morning and had a cup of tea. And it's those pleasurable sensations, they're desirable. We, we see the good in them and we want them. The taste of a handful of ripe berries, perhaps. An easing of pain when you are diseased. We want these things. We desire these things. Or we can move up maybe to the slightly more psychological, mental kind of desires that we have. You guys ever have a desire to understand something that is just perplexing you and kind of driving you crazy? In fact, have you almost felt a physical frustration when you just cannot figure out a problem? We want understanding. We want a sense of peace that tomorrow is provided for. And if you don't have that sense of peace, that desire for a sense of peace can feel like it's grabbed your guts. We call it anxiety. Socially, we desire the goodness of knowing others and being known, not being a stranger. Loneliness is an ache of hunger. It's an ache of desire to have delightful company. It's a normal God-created desire. You feel it in your body. We desire when we see pain and suffering, if we're psychologically normal, we desire to see that pain relieved. This is called compassion, passion with, feeling with, to look at someone else's suffering and Paul talks about bowels of compassion. Your guts yearn that they would be relieved. That is a desire. We desire justice. You ever feel anger inside of you? A physical reaction to the, this is not what is due. This is not what is right. That's a normal desire God created. We desire, more artistically, we desire glory. There is something desirable about the pleasure of beholding what is truly glorious. And in fact, there is even a perfectly normal desire to have the honor of displaying glory. 
It's not wrong to want to be glorious because God made us to display his glory. All of this God made, but why? Why did God make all these desires? I want to give you an answer you might not expect. God made desires because he wants us to experience love. God made desires because he wants us to experience love. A person with no desire, a person who feels nothing because they don't care for anything, they don't desire anything, they don't want anything, they're not interested in anything with any sense of inclination toward it, such a person is actually incapable of giving love or receiving it. There is an old Stoic ideal, and it's in other world religions too, that says the best way to have peace is eliminate all of your desire. True, you will have peace, you'll have no love. Desire is what God uses to pull us out, first of all, toward his gifts. Why did God make the world so full of good gifts and give you such desires? Because God wants to pull you out toward his good gifts. And as you encounter his good gifts, to discover another astonishing gift, which is the gift of sharing his gifts, enjoying them with others. That's another whole level of gift. And ultimately, what is God calling us and pulling us toward? He is drawing us toward himself. Because what he wants for us more than anything is to know and love and be loved by himself, that great son whose glorious goodness and kindness is reaching for us in every sunbeam he sends into our lives, even as he himself infinitely exceeds these sunbeams in glory. When you have been drawn to God's gifts and the goodness of sharing those gifts and through all of this to know him and to encounter his own love, you realize that really is the most satisfying love. It is true that we know God through the sunbeams of his love. Don't ever downplay those sunbeams. God loves them. You should love them. You should enjoy them. But there also comes a point, the closer you draw to God, when you realize that even if God were to take away this or that sunbeam, even if he were to say no to a sunbeam that I want, it's really pretty inconsequential because I have him. The ultimate love. God intends every good thing to be an encounter, a love encounter with him. That's what a gift is, isn't it? A gift is not encountering an object. When my wife gave me a watch, it wasn't the, just an encounter with a, an animate watch. It was an encounter with the person who gave me the watch. It was a love encounter. And every single good thing that God puts in your life, and he gave you such desire for goodness, it's all there because he wants every one of those things to be a love encounter with him that you would experience as a gift from your father that you would be drawn from your inmost being to just the wisdom and goodness that he's put in the thing itself. Man, the world is just mind-bogglingly full of God's goodness and wisdom and drawn through these gifts to worship, to just enjoy the Lord and celebrate before him and to be drawn through your fellowship with this loving God to use these good things for good purposes, for the good of others, just like your God so generously does. All of this God designed. And of course, this was the plan. It was precisely in that kind of loving fellowship with God, that's what would keep us from wanting anything that would oppose God. Why would you want anything that opposes a God who's so good? This loving fellowship would also keep us from expecting good things to be what only God is. You know, you'd realize after a while the sunbeams are awesome. They are not the sun. They're not supposed to be. And this loving fellowship with God would keep us from ever using good things for unloving 
ends. My friend Eric Enlow, in an article about property law of all things, gave a fantastic visual about this. I'd like you to imagine, am I getting feedback on the mic or is it just me? I'm hearing a lot of ring. Is there something we can maybe get that looked at because it's distracting me and you know, I desire to not be distracted. Imagine, if you will, the earth cut in half. And imagine that we are looking at the cutaway side. So you can see our lives on the surface of the earth. Of course, here in the middle, you have kind of the burning, fiery core, the nucleus, and then out there beyond the atmosphere. Just imagine we're looking at that cutaway. My friend Eric Enlow, he said, if, if, if you imagine life, our life on the surface of that cutaway, life on the surface has two possible directions to it. One direction opens up and out toward what he calls the infinite arc of heaven. That realm where we all, it's possible for life on the surface to open up and out toward a life in which we all enjoy more and more and more and more of God. And in, in enjoying more and more of him, we enjoy more and more of each other as a result. That's one direction that life on the surface can take. Just more and more enjoyment of God, more and more enjoyment of each other as we enjoy God together. It's possible, one possible direction of that life is that just as I naturally desire my own well-being, and I do, and that's fine, my desire could open up to desire the well-being of others just as I desire my own well-being. That I, it wouldn't be a competition. Enjoying the goodness that God gives to others and even contributing to that would be a part of my own desire, even as I desire my own well-being. And in every good thing, individually and together, we would be tasting and seeing together the Lord is good. That's one possible direction that life could take. And you can see why C.S. Lewis would say that the problem with our desires, brothers and sisters, is not that our desires are too great. The real problem is our desires are too weak. God wants an enlargement of desire, an expansion of desire toward the infinite arc of heaven, as Enlo puts it. That human beings, we as God's children, we would hunger and thirst, not just for more and more and more quantities of God's gifts. You know, give me more stuff, God, all the time. But rather, we would hunger and thirst for a deeper and richer experience of just the quality of God's love, that love that we taste in every good thing. That is one possibility, right? That's why God made desire. But there's another desire. There's another possibility, isn't there? You can see it in the diagram that I just painted for you visually. I want to talk next about what sin does to desire. That's why God made desires, but what does sin do to desires? Well, we've already said sin is turning from God. It's turning away from the infinite arc of heaven. So if God made our desires to turn us out toward others and upward towards him, guess where sin directs your desires? Sin directs your desires toward an ever-contracting realm of self. Over time, as you pursue sin, the drive of your life it's not opened outward and upward toward God and neighbor. It, you begin to have at the kind of core of your life, the, the drive of your life becomes gratifying yourself, resourcing yourself, 
protecting yourself, securing yourself, defining yourself, asserting yourself, affirming yourself, parading yourself, whatever it might be. Jonathan Edwards wrote about this in a sermon that eventually came to be collected in in the book Charity and Its Fruits. Listen to how Edwards describes this ever-contracting direction of sin. Thank you. He says, the ruin that the fall brought upon the soul of man, okay? The ruin that the fall brought upon the soul of man consists very much in his falling entirely under the power and government of self-love. As God created him, he was exalted and noble and generous. But now he's debased and ignoble and selfish. Immediately after the fall, the mind of man shrank from its primitive greatness and expandedness to an exceeding smallness and contractedness. Before, man's soul was under the government of of God's love, by which it was enlarged to the comprehension, to the inclusion of his fellow creatures and their welfare. And not only that, but it was not confined within such narrow limits as the bounds of creation, but went forth in the exercise of holy love to the Creator and abroad upon the infinite ocean of good. And it was, as it were, swallowed up by that ocean. But so soon as he had transgressed against God... All this excellent enlargedness was gone, and thenceforward he himself shrank, as it were, into a little space. Sin contracted his soul to the very small dimensions of selfishness, and God was forsaken, and fellow creatures forsaken, and man retired within himself and became totally governed by narrow and selfish principles and feelings. Self-love became absolute master of his soul. And the more noble and spiritual principles of his being took wings and flew away. That's what sin does to your desires. Now, what is paradoxical here is that we find, as we become more and more selfish, that we need need other people to live for self. You ever notice this? There are entire social structures in this world that are actually built around what are basically selfish desires and selfish interests. You might think of an extreme case like the collective self that became embodied in Adolf Hitler that small little man who bent an entire collective nation to his own selfishness. But it's usually not quite that dramatic. There are many ways in which we, even socially, we feed each other's selfishness. If you look at a home where parents are spoiling their children and making them more and more and more entitled, is that a generous opening home that is opening toward the infinite arc of heaven? No, that is a home in which self-indulgent parents are indulging their children and throwing more and more gifts at insatiably selfish hearts, and they are contracting actually toward a hellish selfishness, feeding each other in doing so. And that is what happens if you think about the lines of our lives, not going out to the infinite arc of heaven, but contracting now. Together, bizarrely, we contract until we reach a converging point, as Enlo says, a converging point in the infinitesimally small world of hell itself. There is coming a hell. This will be the end of sin. It'll be an extremely small, cramped little place where there'll be nothing to share but the absence of everything good. And there'll be no desire to share any good whatsoever. Enlo speaks about a hellish community of those who share only selfishness. You ever been a part of a community like that? It is a living hell. 
where individually and together we just are contracting more and more towards self. That's what sin does to desires. Away from the infinite arc of heaven towards self. Lastly, though, let me much more hopefully speak for a moment about how Christ restores desires. Because you're not dead in sins and trespasses anymore. Verse 4, that glorious little phrase, but God. So we've turned our backs on God, but God, Paul says in verse 4, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, he just wouldn't let us go. He comes. He lays hold of us. He bursts into our deadness with his irresistibly great love. That's what God does, and he, well, you know, he saves us from all that. He just saves us from that hell-bent direction. He not only makes his son, Jesus, our sin-bearer, so all the, the wrath and punishment that our sins deserve, he lays it in just astonishing love. He just lays that on his son, curses his son in our place. He makes his son our righteousness, the son who, was, who never had one selfish desire in his whole life, whose entire life was outward toward the infinite arc of heaven, toward God and the good of others. God puts that, reckons that righteousness as ours. He says, I will reckon that to your account. But he does more than that. He doesn't just give us a sin bearer and give us a righteousness that we need through Jesus. Paul says in this text that God also puts the resurrection life of his son in us by the Holy Spirit. You and I, by the Holy Spirit, have the, the very life and power that raised Jesus from the dead within us. So that now, being raised with Christ, Paul says, the son's resurrection life, brothers and sisters, that's our life. What that means is the Holy Spirit in you desires what the Son of God desires. Jesus desires as the resurrected Son of God. They are now your desires by the Holy Spirit. And in fact, he goes further and kind of blows our minds. He says, God took us and seated us with Christ in the heavenly places above all these evil powers that corrupt and destroy humankind. We actually have Jesus' own authority over the world that normalizes sin. We have Jesus' own authority over the devil. We, have, we would have no authority in ourselves. We have his authority because we are his. We are united to him by the Holy Spirit. We have his authority over the flesh. Paul says in Romans, sin will not rule you. It will not have dominion over you, even over your desires, even over your bodies. Why? Because you are not in the flesh anymore. You're not in that old dying humanity that you got from Father Adam. You're in the spirit. You're in the realm of the resurrection life of Christ. All of that is the gift of God. We are created by that spiritual power of God for good works, he says in verse 10. But the New Testament makes something very clear to us. You and I have an active role in retraining our desires away from self to once again be outward and upward toward the infinite arc of heaven. When Colossians 3 says, set your affections, set your desires on things above, where Christ is. He is not saying the only thing you want should be some cloudy afterlife where you float around on a cloud, strum your harp, and sing hymns. That is not what he means when he says set your affections on things above. What he's saying is set your affections, set, train toward, train your desires toward that kingdom that's coming from heaven on the earth through the reign of Christ. Heaven is ruling earth through Jesus, by the power of the Holy Spirit. Set your desires on that kingdom that's coming. So I want to give you, as we close today, three focus words for retraining your desires 
Man, this gave me so much to think about this week. How do you retrain your desires for the infinite arc of heaven? First focus word would just be simple God-word-ness. God-word-ness. You and I need, if you don't have them, you are going to struggle. We need daily rituals to wake us up to God's love. We need daily rituals to wake us up to God's love. Joe Rigney has written a fantastic book called Things of Earth that I would so encourage you to read. He points out that some of these rituals in our daily life turn us toward God directly. Some rituals are, involve putting down God's gifts. Put away the gifts. Just strip them away for a while. And pray. And think about God and be still and meditate before Him. To, to just open your heart up to Him directly. To loving Him. To, to, to awakening in yourself a greater sense of how good he is and, and sort of drawing your soul out toward him. You know when you really need to meditate like this is when God is disciplining you. One of the hardest times to remember that God loves you is when he's kind of giving you spankings because you need them. To remember with Hebrews 12, God wouldn't even be giving you discipline if he didn't love you. You gotta meditate on that. You gotta have times in your day. You know, Daniel prayed three times a day toward Jerusalem, remembering, just getting still before the Lord. No, even when God is kind of taking things taking some hide off of me, and I know I deserve it. This is the Father's love. And suffering, too. To remember, as Peter says, you can cast your burdens on the Lord because he cares for you. But you gotta, you gotta get still. You gotta have disciplines of just stopping. Put away the noise. Put away just the, the sound and fury of the world. Even put away the good things of the Lord. Maybe even fasting from food and focus your heart Godward directly. But another way, to cultivate Godwardness is indirectly. And this is just really, really enjoying God's gifts and rejoicing in the Lord as you enjoy those gifts. Because truth is, brothers and sisters, most of us, it's not just that we're not awake to God, we're not even awake to the gifts. You'd be further along in your spiritual growth if you would just pay attention to the gifts and enjoy those. And Rigney points out how there's kind of this rhythm of fasting and feasting putting away things so we can directly focus on God and also then feasting on things to enjoy God more indirectly. And he says something very powerful. He says, rhythms of direct and indirect Godwardness help to fill out how the enjoyment of God's gifts and a supreme love for God can be mutually beneficial and fruitful. God is not in competition with his gifts. And as you fast and feast, you are reminded that total devotion to God and enjoyment of God's gifts, they're both possible at the same time. Yesterday we went to the, the new, one of the New Roots events, that, uh, Stephen and Sarah, their, their new wine label, uh, went to one of their events. And I was sitting there listening to Stephen educate us in, in vine growth and drinking some magnificent sparkling uh, rosé. And I was just sitting there in this beautiful venue looking at this. And, and I just for a moment, as I was kind of encountering God's creation, as Stephen was opening it to us, and the fellowship of the people in that room. I just had this incredible moment of just my heart just so full of thankfulness to the Lord for just the goodness of that moment. And it was a moment in which I was totally enjoying the gifts. I wasn't like, you know, sitting there like, I shouldn't be enjoying this, I should be praying. I was praying as I was enjoying the gifts. It was good, it was, that's Godwardness. Another, another focus word though for retraining desires is generosity. This is less about opening up and more about opening out. Kill your selfishness through sharing God's gifts. 
I have come to think as I study my own heart and other Christians' lives that if you and I will not open our desires outward toward our neighbor, we may never open ourselves upward toward God himself. If you will not kill your selfishness towards the neighbor whom you have seen, what makes you think you will kill your selfishness toward God whom you have not seen? Yes? We need to give. We need to water in order that God may water us. And we don't need to be crazy, you know, and trying to figure out some, you know, far-flung mission where we can give our lives away for Jesus. You know, you can start even in the local church. It's an obvious place. Start giving away what God has given to you. There is so much giving and serving that does not happen in the local church. Why? Because people are selfishly comfortable. How can it be that in a church this size we can't staff a nursery? How can it be that in a church this size we can't figure out a greeter team? How can it be in a church this size we can't have people showing up 30 minutes early to pray down the power of the Holy Spirit in our worship services? You know the answer to that question? Selfish comfortableness. That's why. Plug in. Serve Jesus. Give something away. And God will bless you. Godwardness, generosity. The third focus word, though, this is so important, and I'm almost done, is patience. The trouble with self-focused desires turned away from the infinite arc of heaven towards self is they get etched into our bodies. Wrath is a desire for justice turned towards self. Anxiety is a desire for peace turned towards self. Lust is a desire for beauty and connection turned toward self. But it gets etched into your body. Wrath becomes physical. Anxiety becomes physical. Lust will rewire your brain. And you have to be patient. As you're pursuing God, opening your heart to God, directly and indirectly, pouring yourself out in love and service to your neighbor, you have to be very patient because your bodily feelings will take sometimes a very long time to catch up with what you know in your head and heart about God's love. For some of you, it'll be a lifelong process, feeling like my body is just fighting me. I'm angry before I even mean to be angry. Those old lusts grab me before I even have a chance to recognize what's going on. Your body is slow to follow what you know, but you keep up those bodily rituals of turning toward God and turning toward other people, the kind of stuff we're going to be talking about today in Sunday school. And what you will find slowly over time is that there will come healing of your impulses healing of your brain chemistry even, healing of your emotions. It will come, but be patient, and be patient with other people. Don't be hammering on people because they're wrestling with even the bodily residue of sinful desires as they're retraining new desires toward God and neighbor. Well, that's it. I've said what I want to say. I think in this series, you are children of God. You are eternally loved by him, and so I just would call you again as we close this little series. Brothers and sisters, do not be conformed to this world that normalizes sin. Resist the devil and recall that those who belong to Christ Jesus, they have already crucified the flesh, the old sinful self with its passions and its desires. You're in good hands with God, so fight the good fight of faith. Father, bless these things to our hearts and most importantly to our lives before you in Jesus' good name. Amen.